You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, thanks for coming back. I hope you... That um, who's from Louisville? Yeah, you're from Louisville. Is she from Louisville? She is. Really? Yeah. One of the nonprofits I'm I'm with had their annual meeting um, about a half hour south of Evansville. We always flew into Louisville Airport, and uh, this is yeah, yeah, Sanford Field, Sanford Field, and uh, there's just real gorgeous country out there. We always, we always love flying in there. They like to drive, too. Because once you're used to California, it's so green in June. Right. Um, Terry and I are non-profit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> non-profits. Well, um, that was it. There's a lot of uh, – I thought both those readings were pretty interesting. But rather – before we get into them, I just – I meant to introduce Rudy because he had said that for the first time he wasn't going to read fiction but uh, nonfiction, a memoir. And one of the things I'd like to raise, I'd like to for people to maybe think about and discuss, is the fact that there haven't been a lot of memoirs of science fiction writers. Uh, and uh, I think Rudy's is kind of exceptional in that way. And it's one of the... Uh, that's one of the things I wanted to sort of raise with this group. But before I do, uh, Rudy did talk a little bit about how he got into the field. And, and um, I wanted to ask you about that because you obviously didn't spring from the head of Zeus fullborn. Uh, and uh, I'm just – I mean, Rudy gave, uh, gave a little bit of uh, – sort of guarded detail about uh, selling a book to Jim Bain and stuff. How did you get started in the business? Well, I was fascinated listening to that because I, I was remembering, you know, what was I doing in 1978 yeah. and 1979 and so forth. And, in fact, I had just sold my first two science fiction stories. My f the first two stories I sold were, in fact, science fiction. Two? Um, one was to Asimov's. And the other was to a uh, anthology that Virginia Kidd was putting together called Millennial Women. And oh, yeah. uh, th there are many stories, but I will try to keep to the point. Um, Don't keep to the point. We've I already had, done that part. I, I took a creative writing course at, in college, which convinced me I couldn't write. What college? Mills College. Oh, you went to college out here. Yeah, yeah. I came to Northern California, decided this was the place, and never left. Okay. So, uh, but the, the dear man wanted us all to write literary fiction. And lit fic was not my thing. I couldn't, I didn't like to read it. What I wrote was horrid. Nobody would want to read it, including me. So I gave up on the idea. Oh. Well, then I married into Marion Zimmer Bradley's family. My, my husband's John DeCleese, who was a charter member of... Uh, John Cleese? D John DeCleese. Oh, excuse me. No. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> John DeCleese, he, he had been one of the first members, original members of CIFWA. And, oh. and, and he'd come out, um, and I married him, and suddenly Marion was my sister-in-law. And so 
after a few years, the penny finally dropped, and I realized that real people wrote books that real people like to read. As opposed to, I mean, if any of you have been through the Litvick uh, mill in England, you, you had math department. I'm sure that the math departments have their own culture, but most college and university English departments have a particular culture, and uh, it was not my place, really. Right. And uh, so I thought, wait a minute. She's writing this really cool stuff that I really enjoy. And I have always wanted to, I had intended to write and then given the idea up. So I thought, all right, I'm going to finish something. I started to not finish things. And I had no ambitions about it. I was just going to finish something. And so I started writing with on the principle of, okay, let's put the characters into a situation, what could possibly happen next, and then write that. After a year, I had a book. And it had everything but the kitchen sink in it, as first novels tend to. But there were a few moments, and Marion, bless her heart, read it, <laughs> criticized it. After I stopped crying, I rewrote it, and I rewrote it. We went through a lot of iterations of that. Uh, I sent it out. It got lots and lots of really, really encouraging rejection letters. Uh, <laughs> it took about a 10-year sequence of reworking that material and writing other things and sending them out to finally uh, get something that was publishable. And by this time, there was an adult fantasy market again. And This time meaning, give me a year. Um, it was about 1978 when, when I started negotiating with um, Dave Hartwell because he'd bought something of Marion's that had my kind of magic in it. And I thought, and, and, and they said, well, we're not buying right now, but we like this. Why don't you work on it some more and we'll let you know. And I had people all over the country whenever they saw Dave Hartwell to, to, to <laughs> attack him and say, uh, we hear you're considering Diana's novel. <laughs> so I finally got him to admit in front of a witness that he was going to buy the damn book. And, and, and this was this for Pocket or Berkeley? Yeah, he was, at, he was at Pocket. At Pocket, then. Okay. And, and um, because... I had noticed they were only publishing 90,000-word novels. I cleverly structured it so it could be cut in half. And between part one and part two, Pocket decided they didn't want to do science fiction anymore and fired Dave right. and, and left the, the orphans with some poor little assistant editor who got them out in, in issues of 500 each or something like that. But by then, I'd sold another novel to Susan Allison. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, then Dave got the job with Tor, and he wrote me, and he said, I seem to remember you had an idea for a sequel. I said, there are five sequels. <laughs> <laughs> and, and got a, a multi-book contract. And, and, and you were publishing short stories all the time, yeah, or just yeah, uh, it mostly yeah. in, in the trade? In, mostly uh, in anthologies. And, oh, anthologies. <clears throat> yeah, okay. yeah. And uh, so I've published a about 75 or 76 short stories, but most of them have been uh, in either theme anthologies or shared world anthologies right. and so forth. What I'm current, one of the things I'm currently working on is taking the uh, 
some of the stories, most of which appeared in Sword and Sorceress, although some were in magazines, uh, about a warrior woman that was a story arc because I was basically writing novel and pieces and uh, putting them all together. And um, I'm going to see about putting that out as an ebook and a print on demand and so forth. Cool. All right. Well, then, just as a matter of disclosure, uh, I'm, I'm a writer now. At that point, I was actually an editor, and I worked with Hartwell and mm -hmm. Susan Allison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wrote the uh, – so I was in uh, – sort of mixed up in this whole business, oh, yeah, too. Yeah. I remember all that well, stuff. Well, you know, in those days – it was a tighter community than it is now. Yeah, it was only 100,000 of us then, and uh, we all knew each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, we, none of us, uh, I was trying to sell, my husband was trying to sell, my brother-in-law, Paul Edwin Zimmer, was trying to sell. None of us could get an agent. So we looked at my other sister-in-law, Tracy Blackstone, and said, you have the sense to not try to be a writer. You're going to be our agent. <laughs> and we created a family literary agency in go. which we all did the various tasks, and it worked. All right. Well, all right, if we don't have any questions, I would ask um, also this trans-real business, which, I mean, uh, I meant I was apologizing to Rudy because I knew, in fact, that he wasn't going to read a piece of fiction, but I introduced him as a fiction writer, which, in fact, he's um, quite well known as. But this... Um, this memoir he's written is kind of extraordinary because there are not a lot of memoirs about uh, getting into uh, the science fiction field in the the you know the uh, the late the seventies and the eighties. Asimov's. Hmm? Asimov's. What <laughs> memoir? Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, but that was a much much earlier thing. Oh, Ballard. Ballard has a good memoir. Oh, it does. JG Ballard. All right, and are there? There was one recently. I was Jack trying Vance. to Vance. It was mm. Vance's a couple of yeah. years ago. Yeah. yeah, Vance wrote one, and um, uh, but uh, there's there's not a whole lot of them, and I thought yours was pretty interesting in that way, and I was thinking of the uh, I think it was T. S. Eliot who taught what tradition and the individual talent. He said you'd a writer originality is not really what makes a writer. It, you you fit yourself into a tradition. And I think Larry McMurtry sort of said the same thing. He said, you know, uh, it was Hemingway who said, write what you know or write what you live. McMurtry said, you what in fact you write is what you've read. You know, that's, <laughs> that's really where writers come from. They, they come from readers. They don't come from... Uh, and uh, Rudy talked a little bit about, uh, you talked about Philip K. Dick and Fa Kafka, uh -huh. but what were the other influences on you that you felt like? Yeah. Well, uh, I w well, originally I wanted to be a beatnik writer. I well, mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> when I was in high school, that was, yeah, I think you yourself wanted to be a beatnik writer. Yeah, you're and, famous. Uh, I was a big, very much into Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs. And, of course, Ginsburg and Corso and the rest of them, but especially Kerouac and Burroughs. And uh, so I sort of wanted to write like that. And if you look back, something that actually wasn't clear to me back then, those guys were actually very interested in science fiction. I mean, they, they had this sort of dabbling interest in it, you know, an American art form like jazz or rock and roll. They did? Yeah, yeah. And they, they would say, in a way, Naked Lunch is it's just 
a science fiction novel without a very strong plot. <laughs> but it's it is science fiction, really, in any normal sense of the word. I mean, you got aliens, you got giant centipedes, uh, you know, weird weird drugs, people turning into globs of jelly. So, what? And Burroughs, yeah, Burroughs was in fact a big fan of Harry Kuttner. There's a book he talks about it in one of his novels. There's a, a novel he wrote called Fury, and I think Henry Kuttner, well, they used to name, they used some other name. And also it was his wife wrote with him, C.L. Moore. Mm -hmm. And there's this book, Fury, and there's this, this thing called a happy cloak. And Burroughs talks about the happy cloak a lot. And I, I've worked it into three or four of my novels. It's just such a kind of a funny idea. It's sort of this fungus and it gets on you and it just, you know, it just fills you with this great psychedelic joy. And, um, it's called heroin, right? <laughs> well, but it's, it's kind of cooler than heroin, you know, because it shimmers, you know, and it's just in, in, in software that's, uh, there's this thing called a happy cloak. It's intelligent plastic, and they get it on them, and it grows around them. And uh, there's this line, somebody puts one on a guy, and this boy says, skin like there." Skin like that, very hot, two, three days, then wearing the happy cloak. So I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a key concept for me. And this book I'm writing now, um, it's actually about a love affair between William Burroughs and the computer pioneer, Alan Turing. And uh, I'm, they found a way to turn into giant slugs. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, it's, it's well. Again, you, you're talking about reacting to things you've read and things in the culture. What I'm doing here, I'm sort of reacting to the 1950s notion of science fiction, where in the 50s there was a series of things like, well, the invasion of the body snatchers is the classic example, which the people around you appear to be normal, but actually they're not at all normal, and they're you know they're they're. They're aliens or they're mutants. And that's like the, the 50s terror of homosexuality, communism, uh, use of drugs, being an artist, being an in intellectual, <laughs> you know, being Jewish, you know, whatever. You're Jewish? Uh, I can be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can be all of those things. <laughs> and uh, so... And so the, then there's this sort of black and white quality of these movies. And so that's what, that's what I'm working towards in this book. Turing founds a way to turn himself into this shapeshift, into this giant slug. And Burroughs does the same. And they're just spreading the condition. And usually these, these stories are written from the point of view of uh, the normal people right. getting rid of these things, you know, <laughs> driving out the commies. But I'm writing it from the point of view of the slimy weird, nasty things, you know, are voraciously and joyously taking over. <laughs> it's sort of, which is what my generation did, after all. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to kill us all in Vietnam, and they weren't able to. Yep. And now, uh, now we're old farts. That's true. It's yeah. the one thing we succeeded in was taking over the culture. If, a lot of it's <laughs> just living long enough. <laughs> well, uh, what... Uh, other than Marion Zimmer Bradley, what were your influences as a writer? Well, I just wanted to, to add, well, uh, to what you were saying. Um, in 1966, 
my contribution to taking over the culture was starting the SCA in my backyard. Oh, oh that's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's the SEA? The Society for Creative Anachronism. Oh, yes. Wow, you started that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Sword Fighters Club. Yeah. Well, among other things. But it was always, from the very beginning, the whole culture. Uh-huh. The, the performance arts and the costumes and the, uh-huh. the whole total. And uh, we did not like the 20th century, the mid-20th century. But you didn't want we to were, go forward. You wanted to go back, right? Well, they were the Middle Ages as they should have been. <laughs> Once more with feeling. Yeah, yeah avoiding, avoiding, the, the, we, we did recognize the Middle Ages as they were, were not perfect. And, but there were certain, um, I mean, that's a whole other rant. But so you're cleaning uh, them up. Yeah, and, but there, there were certain elements in that culture that um, filled some needs that were not being met. What were those? Yeah, um, connection connection between people, connection between people and the things you lived with and used, uh, the, uh, a, an environment within which uh, achievement could be recognized and honored, the cons- con- virtues such as honor, and the, the fact that every, in order to participate you had to learn to do things. So people who had never danced learned to dance, people who had never done physical activity learned to swing swords, people learned to sew, people learned to make things. Well, what, how would you see, what was the connection between that? You're 67. 66. Start, start the whole it. earth catalog. Yeah. All yeah. of a sudden people are learning yeah. how to chop wood, uh-huh. make wood stoves, yeah. log yeah. cabins. What's the, is, is that come out of the same impulse? I, th- I think it must have um, because um, we were all responding, I think, to that same soulless quality in the 50s. And disconnected. So yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. that was, uh, somebody mentioned the Whole Earth Catalog one time as sort of the precursor to the Internet in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. in a certain way it was. And I think uh, it all had to do with, with learning to actually mm-hmm. do things. Yeah. And that yeah, was. To do it yourself. Yeah. And we'd all been educated in a way where you get an education so you won't have to actually know how to do anything. <laughs> that's, that's <why laughs> liberal arts. Yeah, yeah, liberal arts. That's interesting. But now that's not literature. So what... Well, um, the, uh, most of the people who were the original founding members in the group were in fact drawn from a local science fiction fandom. Ah, okay. So we were all equally interested in the future. We watched the first season of Star Trek religiously uh-huh. and um, <laughs> so it was, was there was that window of opportunity right there in the middle uh, uh, in the 60s early and middle 60s where you believed you could actually change things yeah. I have a sort of a, a sidelight question I, I've been wondering about relating to the Society of Creative Anachronism now, I mentioned I started a, uh, a webzine, and I called it Flurb, because I thought Flurb was just sort of a funny it, mad magazine. It was the sort of thing you named things in those days, yes. But, but then I looked in uh, the Urban Dictionary online, mm-hmm. and the first definition of Flurb is somebody who's a in, so into the society of creative anachronism that oh, they really? wear chain mail like to a dinner party. Oh, uh, so you, were, you were in it to start with, and you didn't know it. 
and they'll say like he's such a flurb, you know. Well, actually, I never heard that one. It yeah, might have been from a different part of the country. I, I don't think I knew people who wore their mail to dinner parties, but I did know somebody who wore his to work uh-huh. because it helped get him used to carrying the weight. Uh-huh. That he said. <laughs> <laughs> Protection from the boss. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> but you know, so uh, when I finally just. <laughs> For a number of years, all my creative effort went into organizing the SCA. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I realized expecting people to be my creative medium wasn't really fair. And mm-hmm. I switched to writing under the illusion that my characters would be more amenable. Well, there's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they, they always said, write what you know. At this point, what I knew was California topography and medieval culture. So Westria is what happens when you put them together. I see. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And, but, uh, and every, ever since then, if I have a research problem in early technology, I, all you need to do is get online to the SCA list. Somebody mm-hmm. will know or know somebody who knows or know where I can find that information. It's well, been we were, very we useful. We were talking about that at dinner, yeah. The Internet, it's, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword for a writer because you can <laughs> do the <laughs> – it doesn't take three days. <laughs> but it's – you can really quickly find stuff out. Uh, that ordinarily would have been hard to research. Yeah, yeah, and well. The, well the, the risk is if you might find out too much and sort of shovel it all in. Sometimes uh-huh. you'll see books where people overdo that. And mm-hmm. But um, another thing is that you you can piss away a lot of time doing that. But <laughs> I, I found a big part of being a writer is is finding ways to, to kill the time when you're not writing, but to do it in a non-self-destructive fashion. Which is a hard thing. I've never had a problem with that, actually. (laughs) With killing time. Uh, No, that's not my difficulty. (laughs) Uh, But when I was trying to deal with the sword forging for this book... um, You sound like you've actually witnessed a sword forging. Yeah, well, when I had done all the research I could, and I still realized I did not understand the difference between... I didn't understand very much about bronze forging. I'd studied iron forging a bit before when I wrote about Siegfried. But um, I ran, I I got to the end of what I could find out online. Mm -hmm. I got on the SCA list. I explained my problem. Within 24 hours, I had five or six answers. And one of them said, go down to um, the Ardenwood Historical Farm. The resident blacksmith loves to talk to people. Mm Uh, and so I trotted down there, and he was only too ecstatically happy to mm-hmm. talk my ear off for an afternoon. And in fact, he he was he used the sexual imagery uh, when he was describing when he was trying to get a bunch of explain to a bunch of high school guys mm-hmm. about forging. <laughs> he knew that would get their attention, uh-huh. but but it was clear that. He had that attitude, his relationship, and so I thought, okay. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I'd never thought of that. Though. Yeah. What? Oh, that the sword, it's like this this child that you're making. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, then I just sort of went bananas yeah. of imagery. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, indulged myself with purple prose. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, what struck me was that, that the fantasy of, you know, the, I mean, Rudy didn't read fiction, but Rudy's science fiction is usually... I think more very fantastical mm-hmm. and fantasy, and I don't think it's just you. Fantasy tends to be fairly technical. 
Yeah. And, and oh, yeah. the technical aspect. Mm-hmm. I remember I wrote one fantasy novel, uh, and there was a lot of uh, technical stuff. It was about automobiles. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, how are you going to get the reader to believe in the magic if the rest of it isn't malt yeah. water? Yeah. And uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing to examine, that a lot of uh, hard SF is uh, – well, it has it has science in the in the sense of cons- conceptual, but it doesn't have engineering. And I think well, a lot sometimes of, it does, but sometimes it does. But there there was a lot. I, I like the engineering. I, mean, in I have I have to admit to being a little ticked off from time to time when at the, one of the civil gatherings or something some hard science fiction writer will come up and tell me, well, of course you as a fantasy writer don't have to do any research. And I look him in the eye and I say, FTL? (laughs) (laughs) Something, I think about that sometimes, the the thing about fantasy and science fiction and making the science work. And what I found is, I found what I actually end up doing is I decide what effect I want to have in the story. I mean, what I want to see. I want to see a giant slug. I want to see somebody disappear. I want to see them walk through a wall. And I basically, I start with the effect and, you know, what works in terms of the story (laughs) and in terms of the subtext and, and what's symbolic and nice. And then the science, well, I know a lot of science, so I can always find reach down in the grab bag and find something <laughs> to put on for an explanation. <laughs> so it's uh-huh. not so much that you really, there, it, it can work the other way, that science will give you an idea for a cool effect that you wouldn't have thought of. Like what? Oh, well, I mean, quantum entanglement is a good explanation for telepathy, but we already had the idea of telepathy, so the entanglement is an afterthought. What's quantum entanglement? It's what? It's if two things have been near each other, they're forever linked uh, causally. All is one. Hard candy. Yeah, that's also a principle in magic. Well, that's it. <laughs> See, it's and so you start with the magical effect, and then you tack the science on. But you would ask, <laughs> are there any good ideas I've gotten from science? Well, I mean, transfinite, transfinite numbers. Okay, I, I wouldn't have thought of those without. What the hell are they? <laughs> we get up to infinity, and then you keep counting. There's more. <laughs> Lots of room at the top, boy. <laughs> okay. All right. We. <laughs> and the fourth dimension, I don't uh-huh. know. But a lot of the fourth dimension you can do, you can explain. The things you do are that you can explain in magical terms. So other worlds. It's, it's different. But it's basically we're looking for these archetypal effects. Science fiction is not so different from fairy tales. It's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. it's just we, we take things that are important to us deep in our minds, deep in our souls, and then we externalize them into these, these concrete objects or concrete situations, and then we can think about them better. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask about was you've just talked about the fact that you felt constricted and disempowered and um, everything by the whole idea of mainstream literature. 
And uh, Rudy uh, is talking about he wanted to be a beatnik. And the beatniks were part of mainstream literature. They were the opposition, but they were in the tent, sure. you know. Absolutely. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be I wanted to be a beat writer because you were you were famous, you looked cool, and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. You're in Life magazine. So how do you see, when you talk about mainstream, what do you mean? The New Yorker. The New Yorker when? You're talking well, about I suppose, back in the day. I have to admit that I mostly, I very rarely read it, but certainly when I was in college, I encountered a few too many of the story, which is beautifully written, has deep characterization, and absolutely nothing happens. Sure. Yeah. And that's bad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and my poor professor wanted us to do social realism. You know, this was Mills College in the mid-60s, most, about as close to social realism as most of the, our students had ever been was their mother's cleaning ladies. <laughs> all right. And, all right. Um, well, all right. That helps. I remember reading when I read um, Rudy's um, um, Memoir, which uh, Rudy, uh, he was kind enough to share with me before um, he read it here. And I remember you talking about when you were an English major and stuff, and you thought, do I, you didn't want to slog through George Eliot. I remember you saying <laughs> slog through George Eliot. Pamela. Oh, that's well, Richardson. Pamela, I agree. But uh, George, and I thought, wow, this guy really didn't like the early English novel, you know. But, uh, Pamela, I can understand. But so that stuff, it never got to you. It just, no. I so, just couldn't read it. I mean, it wasn't interesting. I didn't like it. I mean, what can you do? All right. I mean, I'll read Moby Dick. I love Moby Dick. Yeah, that was great. Well, oh, and that's and the one about the whale, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, the real, Chaucer's fun. Mm -hmm. The language is fun. But, I mean, you know, just, you're not going to read every piece of shit just because... It's in the canon. You know? <laughs> 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 All right. Well, and do you read any? Do you read any of uh, like what we would call mainstream literature? What do you read today? Uh, I read a lot of for fun uh, mysteries. Mysteries like who? Um, Laurie King is wonderful. Who's Laurie King? I thought we did. I thought we did. Yeah, I, we I did mean, have her here. I'm, You're I'm right. Just, I'm just rereading. Um, and you introduced. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I loved her. I loved her yeah, work. Yeah. No, she uh, she does she does uh, beautiful stuff. Uh, I I've got a couple of sets of Lois <laughs> Bujold. Yeah. I adore Bujold's work. I'd hardly call Lois uh, mainstream, but. No, like I said. Yeah. Okay. I read right. science. Some science. I read science fiction. I read. Who do you read in science fiction? Lois Bujold. Um, I read the Honor Harrington books. I like military fiction, military right. science fiction. Uh, I read the kind of thing I probably never will write. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, well, is that and anything else that happens to cross my path that isn't nailed down. Is that what writers read? They read what they wouldn't write? I think that's what I read. Yeah. The stuff that I, I either don't want to or am not qualified I, to write. I read my kind of thing when somebody sends it to me for a blurb. Well, yeah, we have to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's... So, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes I'm very happy I did. Yeah. Uh, but 
it's too much like work to otherwise. <laughs> well, but that's that's for but for fun you read mysteries. Mostly. Yeah, yeah. And not not SF, not fantasy, but well, mysteries. M- mysteries, science, some science fiction. Um, oh, yeah. Right, that makes sense. What do you read for fun, Rudy? Well, let's see. Besides my work, dinner. Yeah, I wish you wrote more. Um, I do. Okay. <laughs> you say <just> read it. <laughs> I'll read it all. <laughs> Pirates. Of the Universe. It's a great novel by Terry. Wow, Set in Kentucky, Transreal. All right, Transreal. That's, uh, that's my favorite book of yours. And, uh, well, of course, I mean, Thomas Pynchon I love. Though he doesn't Lately? Books. Well, his last book, it was fun. It wasn't as good as some of the earlier ones. Um, I read this big book about Siberia this winter. You know, uh, Travels in Siberia, cool mm-hmm. book. Yeah, nonfiction. Yeah, I just uh, there actually really I just is started a reading Huck Finn again. Mm. I thought, well, I haven't read this. With the naughty words. It's the sort of official University of California edition with footnotes and has the original illustrations. It was written in. Uh, I last read it when I was in the seventh grade. It's been quite a while, <laughs> but it's it's fun. It's it's uh, kind of more fun than I remembered. It's good. There's some beautiful nature writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a good style to have little stories in the novel. You always, when you're writing a novel, you think, how the hell am I going to write this many words? <laughs> so it's a picaresque novel is a good model. You think, well, I'll just have stuff happen, you know, in the different chapters. Sounds that's, like a plan. That's, <laughs> that'll get you. Put them in a car. Yeah, put, uh, they, <laughs> my characters just got in a car. They killed some cops and they got this... Uh, Cars are good. Got this... Uh, 1955 Pontiac Catalina. You'd like this car, <laughs> But, uh, and what else I've read recently? I don't know. I did, re- I reread On the Road recently. They did, uh, they had a nice edition of it. It was the, the original scroll. Is that really better? It's about, oh, it's about 25% longer than the first one. That sounds ominous. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great, it's great writing. If you love the writer, you don't mind having a little bit more. It was all good stuff. It wasn't really like he just got on a speed binge and typed it all out in a week because he had he had kept notebooks on all these trips. Mm-hmm. And it was more he'd have the, like little scrappy notebooks and he would be copying them into it. So that also is very beautiful nature writing and some really, really good stuff there. He talks about falling asleep in an all-night movie theater showing, I don't know, some science fiction movies or something. And he talks about the word, a horrible osmotic experience from which I've never recovered. <laughs> <laughs> Osmotic. Cool. That's not a word you see. Well, you had, a, you had a big thing of uh, um, about me. What's his name? The Sheckley. Oh, yeah. Well, Sheckley, Sheckley was, was a hero of yours. Yeah, he was the, the first writer that I really loved. He was the guy who got me to start wanting to write science fiction. There's a book called Untouched by Human Hands. I read when I was uh, in the 10th grade and book of stories, and I just thought... This is so cool. There's just nothing that would be cooler than to write like this guy. And then I was fortunate that I ended up knowing Sheckley. He even came, he was sort of a, an odd guy. He sort of He parked in your driveway in a fucking uh, yeah. trailer, right? He turned up at our house. It was like having, it's like you're a shepherd and Zeus comes down, you know. <laughs> he shows up in this trailer with, with Jay Rothbell Sheckley. Yeah. And, uh, he plugged into our, his garden hose into his tank, our garden hose into his tank, and plugged his 
his incredibly powerful batteries into our, <laughs> in our house. And he was just hanging out there for a few days. It was wonderful. The Sheck man. <laughs> when Zeus came down to you, it was Miriam Zimmer Braley, right? <laughs> yeah. But maybe that's what happens to writers. I don't know when Zeus comes down. And you, uh, uh, Zeus never. Well, came I, down I think to one me. of the characteristics of, of the science fiction community, it, because it is, has, through fandom, everybody at least used to know everybody. And um, there's a, always been a lot of mentoring. Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think science fiction, it, it seems like a lot of us knew some other mm-hmm. writer. Yeah, yeah. Nobody helped you, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <I'll> <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's interesting. Terry and I did well, write a story together. Yeah, we did. Um, all right, well, we should open this up. People... If they don't have any questions, it's because you're really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question. Shoot. A lot of what we have going on right Say it real loud. I'm sorry. A lot of what we have going on right now is technology allows artists and the listeners to sort of collaborate and combine. The artist can release a product as they see fit, but they can also release it out there through the Creative Commons and allow people to with it and create their own thing from it. Yes. However, the world of literature has seemed to sort of pass over this trend. And I mean, aside from maybe quality, potential quality issues and continuity issues aside, you know, why do you guys think that's been? Well, I've, I've done Creative Commons releases of some of my novels, like the Wear Tetralogy. Right. And, uh, it's whether you, do you want to, do I want to put the remix license on it so you can sample it and do something else with it? Uh, I, I'm of two minds about that. I don't know. If somebody really wants to do it, they'll do it anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, I mean, Cory Doctorow told me you should go ahead and do that. And I did it with one of my releases. And then I noticed that Cory wasn't doing that. <laughs> it's like you know go on in there Rudy jump off you know <laughs> I'll watch <laughs> so I don't know but uh, it's I mean I certainly I like the idea of influencing people and I like putting things out in CC because then you know they can cut and paste and uh, that's okay with me it's not like there's a huge amount of money involved I mean obviously if somebody makes a movie out of one of my novels I want to be the guy who's getting paid, you know, but uh, if somebody's going to shoot something in his in his garage from one of my novels, well, nobody's going to be paid anything, so I don't care if he does it, really. Yeah. But uh, it's, it is certainly true with music. It, it, it is sampling. Well, there was one writer, uh, this very cool San Francisco writer, and she, she was really into sampling. Who? Uh, what was her name? She died about five years ago, ten years ago. You know, she was she was published by Grove Books. She's really cutting edge, cool punk woman. Uh, why can't I think of her name? Pat Murphy. No. She's still alive. I know. <laughs> yeah, Kathy Acker. Oh, Kathy Acker. Was it Kathy Acker? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, Kathy Acker wrote yeah. Meat Poems. So um, somebody did. I don't know if it's the, really the same thing, but. Uh, there's a certain kind of usually fantasy 
where the created world is so compelling that everybody wants to come play. Marion was uh, very into that, and so she, in fact, did a couple of Darkover anthologies, encouraged us all to write stories in it, and that was great fun. Then some woman from the Midwest wrote a Darkover novel and tried to patent Darkover. Ah. And Marion's she wanted Marian's, to conquer it, not yeah, just Marion's Marion's lawyer said, "No, no, 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 no! You don't do any more shared world anthologies." So that I think has been some of the the problem with with literature, where where somebody comes along and and tries to write their own version and take it over. Well, Jane Austen doesn't have that power apparently. Or not anymore. No, agent. no. She, uh-huh. you know, if you're out of, yeah. you know, <laughs> so that's not going to work. Well, eventually, yeah, you enter the mainstream, whatever. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I remember when I was doing my master's orals, I had put in in comparative literature and I'd put Tolkien on my list of works that I could be uh, examined on. Now, they didn't ask me any questions about Tolkien, which was too bad, but uh, I was so jazzed that they accepted my putting his name, and now he's practically mainstream. Practically, yeah. yeah. Effectively. I don't know, how do you guys see this? What's mainstream? What's not? Are uh, we you can write a dissertation on it in an English department and get it passed. Well, you know they have science fiction stories in The New Yorker now. There, there was one last month. Hmm. It was about some people. Did it have a plot? Yeah, they had a brain. <laughs> it had a really corny, cheesy plot like somebody <laughs> would write if all they knew about science fiction was that they'd watch uh-huh. Star Trek, you know. <laughs> it was like oh, some fucking wow. brain-dead, you know, sentimental slop. But it was in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Well, but you know, also, what's what's his name? The, my brain's going. The excuse me, you know, the Dominican kid that's so hot these days. So. Yeah. Diaz. What? Diaz. The short happy life of Jim. You know, yeah, Diaz. that was in the New Yorker. And I of thought Oscar, it was, yeah. I thought it was brilliant. First yeah, time I read it. And some good stuff. It was, a, but it was about a science fiction fan. Yeah, and it was written as I thought it was the best imitation of Kerouac I had ever read. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought it was fantastic stuff. So, you know, the New Yorker is very the New Yorker changes. I mean, it used to be, and I even liked the old New Yorker stuff. I liked, um, um, but it's changed. It's not. It's not that. Yeah, anymore. And, yeah. I, I'm. I'm certainly reasoning without yeah. complete data. But now they only do one story. They used to do yeah. two. Yeah. I have a whole theory, which I'll I probably presented here. There's only one story, appreciate. Yeah, yeah. But uh, who do people think is the most popular short story writer in America today? Who replaces Salinger? Well, where can you even read short stories today? What do you today? mean by popular? Most read, most influential, most important. The one that's um, not, you know, the one that's most important. Yeah. Who? Yeah, Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman's very popular. Yeah, Yeah, but he didn't write many short stories. Yeah, he does. He writes plenty. Where are they? Who? Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Stephen King, yeah, he might be the most popular story writer. Well, he might be. Did you... 
Is he boiled rice? Yeah, he's all right. right well, what's the answer you're looking for? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, professor. Let me ask this. Uh, I mean, I'm of a generation. Uh, we should, uh, we're, we're not going to go on forever. Because you guys are not asking intelligent questions. Um, but uh, for my generation, Salinger was so important. The Nine Stories, 1960. Yeah. That was. Big, big books. That had a huge influence on me. And, um, and I'm just thinking of who today fills that role. And um, I think it's David Sedaris. And he's smart enough that he doesn't call them short stories, but they are. And they're, uh, they're the only short stories, I think, that people that really sell in big numbers. And they're transreal. They're transreal because, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where is he publishing? Exactly. He's tra- the New Yorker. Oh, the New Yorker. He's trans, <laughs> but also well, that in his own. why I haven't seen him. <laughs> I never made the connection. It, it's just like you said. It's Rudy's theory. They're transreal. They're not fiction. They're not not fiction, but they're not fiction. Huh? Reality plus plus. Yeah, reality plus plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, because if you call it a short story, nobody wants to read it. When you pick mm-hmm. up The New Yorker, what do you read? The movie reviews, then you look at the cartoons, then you go to the front, the Hertzenberger thing, and then maybe you look at the short story. But it's not what you read. Not usually. Unless it's Sedaris. And he says it's, it's something that really happened. It's bullshit. It didn't yes. really happen. <laughs> anyway, we should close it out. Uh, I like these two guys. There might be a some couple more. of pros. They're great. They're very different, but they're tilling the same garden. Chris. Are you trying to mumble or just mumbling? Yeah. <laughs> as as uh, the foremost pioneer of the transrealism movement, uh, uh, you were influenced by uh, Dickens. He makes a, uh, who do you see writing today that falls into this, aside from Sedaris? Um. Nothing's popping to my mind. I mean, I like Charles Strauss's writing a lot, but I don't think it's transreal particularly. (laughs) (laughs) Trans what? Transurreal. I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> the mundane. Ter- Terry wrote a story about that that just totally destroyed it. <laughs> oh, it's like if you're a mundane writer in the year thousand, you know, you wouldn't be able to write about print or what? I don't know. <laughs> what is this movement? Well, that sounds like something I want. Yes, the mundane movement means that science fiction should be about stuff that can actually happen. Uh-huh. And so and we shouldn't sh- have teleportation. We shouldn't have superheroes. We shouldn't have uh, well, it's time not science fiction. Then. It's science. Right. No, no, it goes back to one of the original definitions of hard science fiction where you could only extrapolate a little. And then they said, okay, you can have one total outlier thing. Oh, I never heard that. That's cool. And then you have science fiction differentiating itself from Skippy differentiating itself from sci-fi, and it gets very OG. Well, you can, uh, if you look on the web, you can find a lot of stuff about mundane SF. It was all the rage about about three, four years ago. Yeah. And then Terry wrote it. Jeff Ryman. Terry wrote this very funny story that I printed. He couldn't sell it. There was going to be a mundane anthology, and Terry wrote a story for it, and they wouldn't take it because it was too mocking. <laughs> it was too mundane. <laughs> and so they put it, I put it in Flurb, 
And but it's what was it called? Captain Mundane or what? <laughs> Captain Ordinary. Captain Ordinary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the whole lot. You so know, if you go to flurb.net and uh, look. There's a list of all the stories <laughs> you can find. And Ca- Terry yeah. Bisson, Captain Mundane. It's a yeah. really funny story. It's all the superheroes are together, and none of them's allowed to do anything. You know, they have to hitchhike. You know, to get somewhere. <laughs> can't fly. Yeah. Can't bend anything. You That's know, you got to rent a steam shovel. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea. All right, um, you guys look like you've all gone to sleep. We have too. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming. This is our inaugural appearance for. Uh, we're going to do another year of uh, really interesting writers, two at a time. Hopefully, they're going to be a little bit different, but these guys are different, but they're the same. They're accomplished, interesting pros in the field, and the field is what we're all about. And Thanks so come back and see us. All right. Yay. All right. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks for coming. It was good. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.